Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Forever. Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the nation's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And this podcast is an extension of both their reporting and of their mission. Each week we focus on major topics affecting the LGBTQ community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. Over the past few weeks, we've been discussing the flood of anti-transgender bills being introduced at the state level. There are dozens of bills seeking to bar trans youth from playing sports and criminalize medical practitioners who provide gender-affirming care. At the same time, there are efforts to chip away at LGBTQ rights happening on all levels. This past fall, the Supreme Court heard a case from a Catholic adoption agency seeking the right to discriminate against LGBTQ foster and adoptive parents while receiving taxpayer funding. The case could open the door to discrimination across other areas, from drug treatment to medical services. This case comes on the heels of a major victory for LGBTQ people at the Supreme Court. In June, the justices ruled that federal anti-discrimination laws extend to protect queer and trans people in the workplace. One of the cases behind the ruling was brought by the late Amy Stevens, who was fired from her job when she came out as a transgender woman. As we look ahead to what could happen in the courts over the next year and continue to discuss the anti-trans legislation being considered across at least 20 states... I'm delighted to be joined by Chase Strangio, one of Stephen's attorneys and an expert on everything I just mentioned, for an in-depth conversation about what's happening and what we can do about it. But first, over the long weekend, former President Donald Trump was acquitted in his second impeachment trial by all but seven Republican senators over his role in the uprising at the Capitol. LGBTQ plus groups roundly condemned the decision to acquit in the wake of the white supremacist violence we all witnessed on January 6th. LGBTQ Nation Associate Editor Juwan Holmes is going to kick off the show with a chat about what this means for our communities. All right, let's get right into it. Juwan, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm glad to be on the show um, show finally. I know Bill was on here before, and um, we are glad to have you guys as part of our team. Thank you. Well, I am um, really uh, excited to talk to you because you have been uh, writing about Uh, this latest impeachment, and you rounded up the reactions to the acquittal from LGBTQ groups and individuals. I'm guessing it wasn't surprising that they condemned the results. What message do you think the acquittal sends about what happened at the Capitol? Overall, I feel the message that it sent to all of us as a people, as Americans, was that Trump's message to the rioters afterwards was the right message all along. In that he said, you are loved, you are very special, to paraphrase. And as provoking as it sounds, it's um, it it turned out to be what is 
True, because if anyone else had stormed the Capitol, had, you know, broke into a federal building on American soil, there would be no question of finding any and every single person responsible or that supported in any way and holding them accountable. But because most of these people were primarily supporters of the sitting president at the time, and because most of those people were conservatives and white people, you know, people, white, mostly men, um, it was, you know, it was allowed. So I think, unfortunately, that was the main message it sent was that everything Trump told them at the end of their, whatever you want to call their actions on January 6th, turned out to be exactly how America feels about them, is that they were special. They were they were loved. They were um, unique. They were allowed to do what they wanted to do because as a country, we live in a conservative, primarily white serving um, state. What happened on the 6th, this is not going to end just like, you know, it's not going to go away. It's not going to just go into the history books of some random moment. I, I don't have a positive outlook on it, to be honest. Indeed. I think we don't hold the gravity of what's been going on around us. We obviously living through all these historical moments, it's hard to grasp it. And especially when it's happening in the present. But um, I think 20 years from now, people will be looking to us or looking in the history books and wondering, how in the world did the sitting president of the United States call the people that broke into the Capitol while the vice president and both houses of Congress were in session and threatened their lives? Had the sitting president called them very special and that person was not held accountable for his actions in not only after, but before the storming of the Capitol. In the end, America protects whiteness and it protects capital. And even when it comes to the attack on the United States Capitol building, it was not in the government's interest to protect its own capital, its own government. So I can't imagine what worse message to send to your own citizens that they live in a country that doesn't find them their own, their own people worthy to protect. On that note, there were members of an anti-LGBTQ group that participated in the riot. What message do you think the acquittal sends to queer and trans Americans specifically? Specifically, I think for queer and trans um, people, it's I think what the human rights campaign said in the aftermath of the ruling says it best. Today comes as no surprise to us because, um, you know, this is to anyone that is marginalized in America. It really isn't. I mean, we've seen, I mean, regardless, even if you are queer or trans and for people that intersect at that at, in those marginalized identities of being of a racial minority or an ethnic minority, we see time and time again that America not only allows, but it sort of thrives on this lack of rights that people have. I think it just sends the message that a majority of Americans are not free. In America, we are not safe. Yeah, well, I, I definitely think that, uh, as you mentioned before, even though the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial is now complete, this is something we are going to be sitting with and dealing with the trauma and ramifications of for a long time. So, Duan, thank you so much for talking to me. Where can our listeners find you on social media? 
Sure. I am at Juwan the Curator on pretty much every social media site. I'm not on Facebook much, but you can find me there. J-U-W-A-N, The Curator. Um, on Twitter, I am also Juwan the Writer. J-U-W-A-N, The Writer. So, um, yeah, and I'm at LGBTQ Nation almost every day, but always on the weekends. So you can find me covering news there as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, We'll definitely be keeping up with all of your work and I look forward to having you on in the future. Moving on to a conversation about anti-trans legislation and what we should be looking out for at the Supreme Court this year, I am so very excited to be joined by Chase Strangio, the Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project. Welcome, Chase. Thank you for having me, Alex. I'm really excited to talk to you um, because I feel like you have just been so on top of everything that's happening um, lately, and it is all happening very quickly. But first, I do want to look back over the past year. In 2020, you want to case in which the Supreme Court ruled that LGBTQ plus people are protected in the workplace by federal anti-discrimination laws. For our listeners who aren't as familiar, could you remind us how the plaintiff Amy Stevens firing happened and why this discrimination was overlooked for so long? Yeah, no, thanks, Alex. So um, one of the highlights of this past year, as is so often a case in civil rights cases, you know, incredibly transformative Supreme Court decisions come out of people's, you know, experiences of trauma and violence and discrimination. And so, you know, and that was the case with Amy Stevens and the two other individuals whose cases were before the Supreme Court in a case that was ultimately combined to called Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. And the question in the case was whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in employment uh, because of an individual's sex includes discrimination against someone for being LGBTQ. Um, And our client, Amy Stevens, was a transgender woman who worked at a funeral home in Michigan for over six years. And when she informed her boss that she is trans and would be coming to work um, as the woman that she is, uh, she was fired right away. And so at the time, uh, this all happened in 2014. So the legal system is not exactly known for its efficiency. But in 2014, Obama was still president. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission actually sued her former employer. She was fired actually in 2013 and 2014, the EEOC sued. These were not situations in which the employers were arguing that the firing was for some other reason. They were literally just saying, we fired you because you're trans. And so that question was brought to the Supreme Court. You know, there are not explicit protections in federal law for LGBTQ people, meaning it is not enumerated in federal law that you are protected based on your sexual orientation, your gender identity, or your transgender status. But we have received protections in the federal courts for a long time, arguing that it is always inherently sex discrimination when someone is discriminated against for being LGBTQ. And that's ultimately what the justice has held this past June on June 15th in a 6-3 decision affirming the rights of LGBTQ workers, but also in a decision that was unequivocal enough that it clearly applies to all federal statutes that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. In an interview with GQ, you said this was, quote, the most beautiful win we could possibly get out of this court. 
How are you feeling today, nine months on, about the impact of this case? It was incredible. I mean, obviously, this court is incredibly conservative. It's gotten worse since the decision um, in the wake of RBG's death, obviously, but we were able to get the chief and Justice Gorsuch in this 6-3 decision. I still believe it has had and will continue to have an incredible impact on the ability to fight for LGBTQ protections uh, in the federal courts. That said, I think that You know, since June, we, you know, still had many months of Donald Trump transforming the federal judiciary. We've seen already the backlash um, to President Biden's election, um, as well as just the backlash to Bostock itself through state legislatures introducing this just wave of anti-trans bills that is increasing every single day. And, you know, it's not as if Supreme Court decisions are self-executing in the sense that, oh, well, the law now says this and therefore states are going to just automatically come comply with it. You know, Brown v. Board of Education was decided in 1954 and we still have massive, you know, school segregation. Um, And so I think that with all sort of formalized legal equality norms, you see just how entrenched the mechanisms of discrimination are. And now we're dealing with the consequence of four years of President Trump, the consequences of, you know, hundreds of years of legal discrimination. And it's really hard to ensure that these protections are actually enforced and we're contending with it now in many ways. That said, had it gone the other way, it would have been catastrophic. And so it's, it is a beautiful win. And it, you know, since the court's decision in Bostock, two appeals courts, two federal appeals courts have affirmed the rights of transgender students under the Equal Protection Clause and Title IX um, to access restrooms and locker rooms consistent with their gender identity and incredibly important opinions. One in Gavin Grimm's case, which has gone up and down the court system for many years. Gavin's a full adult now, not in high school anymore, but he got an incredible decision in the Fourth Circuit. Court of Appeals in a case called Adams that Lambda Legal brought. There was an incredible decision from the 11th Circuit with a case out of Florida. And we got an amazing decision in a district court in Idaho challenging their anti-trans sports bill that they passed last year. And the judge uh, blocked that law from going into effect in an incredible opinion. So all of that is the legacy of the Bostock decision and everything that Amy and the two other plaintiffs in that case did. Can you remind our listeners what Gavin Grimm's case is about? And will we be learning more about Gavin Grimm's case if it'll be taken up by the Supreme Court in the next couple of months? We filed Gavin's case at the ACLU. Um, my colleague Josh Block has been the lead attorney on that case since it was filed. We filed it in 2015. At the time, Gavin was in high school still. He came out as trans, you know, let his principal and, you know, know that he's a boy and needed to use the boys' restroom. The Gloucester County School Board in Virginia, um, you know, got word of the fact that the principal uh, was affirming his gender. So he actually went to school, was treated and affirmed as a boy in many ways, went to the boys' restroom. The school board then, you know, in response to outcry by adults and complaining about Gavin using the restroom, passed this policy that essentially says that trans students can't use the restroom consistent with their gender identity and set up these sort of fake separate restrooms just for trans students. The case goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and is taken up in 2016 by the court. Essentially, the question is, does Title IX, which is the federal law prohibiting sex discrimination in education, prohibit this type of discrimination against trans students, as well as is it a violation of equal protection under the U.S. Constitution? The case ends up not being heard by the U.S. Supreme Court because between the time it's taken, so the 
Supreme Court has a process by which it considers cases and then grants review of some of them. Between the time it grants review in Gavin's case and when argument would have been held, the election of President Trump happens. The sort of legal landscape changes. The case goes all the way back down to the lowest court in 2017 and is litigated back up through the courts over the past four years. He wins again in the lower courts and then again gets an incredible decision from the Fourth Circuit. At this point, the school has changed their argument multiple times about sort of who is allowed to use the boys' restroom. It's first, it's like, you need to update your birth certificate. Gavin updates his birth certificate. They're like, actually, you need to have surgery. Gavin has surgery. They're like, actually, you need to have XY chromosomes to use the boys' bathroom. You know, so it's like this ever-shifting definition of quote-unquote biological sex. Gavin wins again at the Fourth Circuit. And now we're at the juncture where the Supreme Court is about to be asked again by the school board. Gloucester County School Board has now spent hundreds of thousands to millions of taxpayer dollars to bring this case up to the Supreme Court for the second time. It will, you know, it will be back in the posture where the court will be deciding whether or not to take up this question of whether it violates Title IX and equal protection to bar trans students from restrooms consistent with their gender identity. Um, And Gavin's sort of been the face of this in many ways um, for the past six years. Now, I'm curious about how the climate that we're in right now could impact uh, Gavin's case as well. Last week on this podcast, I talked to Chris Mosier and Amara Jones about how sports have become the vehicle to discriminate against trans kids and in particular trans girls and how this legislation is paired with measures that criminalize gender affirming care. I kind of just want to get to the point here. How are these bills effectively aiming to erase trans people from public spaces? Because that's what it really seems like it's about at the end of the day. Yeah, I know. It's 100% about that. Gavin's case is still pending, but the people pushing the anti-trans bathroom bills largely lost that fight. You know, after HB2 passed in North Carolina in 2016, there was never another bill passed, you know, on a statewide level, barring trans individuals from restrooms. They've lost every single case in court. We've been successful um, at every level of litigation. They lost at the ballot, admitted that they completely contrived the whole, you know, bathroom predator myth for the sake of demonizing transgender individuals. And so they shifted tactics to sports. I think what is so scary is that we're now in this place where there is this escalating rhetoric, largely in the US and the UK. It's incredibly well-funded and it's playing on people's sort of reflexive fears of gender variance and getting further and further entrenched in the legal and political discourse. And in Idaho, we've been litigating against the state of Idaho and Alliance Defending Freedom against their anti-trans sports bill. And they actually, I kid you not, present arguments in court. And they did this in Amy's case too, which is to say that actually this bill is good for trans people because it is harmful to be trans. And so forcing trans people into their quote unquote biological sex, which is what they don't have a definition of it. They just use it to weaponize discrimination against trans people. Um, You know, they're saying it's for your own good because it's so inherently harmful to be trans. So that's a subtext in the sports bills. Absolutely. It's, you know, this is a harmful, you know, there's this false sort of protectionism of cis women and girls, which is often, you know, white women and girls, by the way, leveraged for harmful purposes. That's like the whole basis of imperialism and colonialism in many ways. But that's going on. But there's also this sort of false protectionism of trans people 
people, which is it is harmful to be trans, so we will stop you from it. So that's animating the sports discourse, absolutely. And then combine that with the criminal health care bans, which are, you know, actively trying to stop people from being trans, making it a crime to affirm trans young people. The masks are off. Like the, you know, people are writing books, people are pushing laws, essentially saying we have to stop this experience of transness. It's a eugenic, I mean, I've been saying it for the last few years, like this is a eugenics project. The goal is to prevent people from being trans, to control people's bodies. Um, It has nothing to do with medical experimentation. It has nothing to do with sports. Like there are very few trans athletes who are competing at any level of competition. There is no dominance. Um, Every major medical association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the Endocrine Society, the Pediatric Endocrine Society affirms the medical necessity of this care. It's just, you know, an incredibly well-resourced and organized movement in opposition to transness that is fueling this. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I feel like it really exploits people's ignorance or lack of information about actually how complicated gender is to begin with. It also exploits the this protectionism about women, which actually no woman athlete is asking for this at all. No one actually involved in sport is asking for something like this. And it would also make it more dangerous, uh, imbue sports with racist and sexist standards for all athletes as well, which we've seen with some really horrible measures that I think have been introduced at state legislatures this week. So one of the things you mentioned is that a lot of these are happening very, very quickly. What kind of happens next? I mean, eventually, will we see the courts take up this issue? And then since the Trump administration has had such an impact on the courts, how might we see that play out? This is terrifying. I mean, and as you mentioned, it's getting more and more dystopian. Like Idaho's bill last year had a sex testing regimen in it. Georgia last week introduced a bill, HB 372, that proposes a three-physician panel to review the medical records and bodies of young women and girl athletes to determine who's eligible to play in women's sports. I mean, this is truly, you know, invasive violations of the Fourth Amendment, privacy concerns. I mean, this this is not something anyone should want. But they're moving so fast. You know, for example, Georgia had a hearing on a different sports bill. By the time that hearing was concluded, a new bill had been filed. Um, You know, I will get off a call and there'll be five more bills. Um, Many have passed one legislative body. So in Montana, for example, HB 112, which is their sports bill, has passed through the House. It will now be heard in the Senate. I would say in the next two weeks, we will start to see, you know, I fear some of these bills passing through both legislative bodies and being signed by governors in in, in a few states. Hopefully we can stop it. I mean, I cannot, you know, urge enough how critical it is to stop these things before they pass, in part because, you know, the tool that we would use and have always used when these do become laws to sue. However, it is going to be a extraordinarily uphill battle to file lawsuits against these bills should they become law, because many of the courts that we will be appealing, you know, at least after the first round of litigation into are completely dominated by Trump appointed judges. And that doesn't mean we cannot win, but it's, you know, it's going to become close to impossible to win sometimes given the way the federal judiciary is, is stacked against us. So, 
Yes, I think we will see these things in the courts. We already have Hecox, which is the Idaho case that we filed after last year. Um, it's going to be on appeal at the Ninth Circuit being argued in May. I fear we're going to see more of them. If a healthcare bill passes, I mean, absolutely, we will be in court within a day because we absolutely can't have a situation where trans young people are having their healthcare cut off. And so, you know, there's lots of litigation prep happening. Hopefully none of it ever has to be filed, but I fear that it will. And then we're going to be in a situation when we're, we're sort of litigating in the hostile judiciary that we are currently confronted with. And I will also note that state legislatures right now are truly introducing horrible bills on almost every topic. You know, Oklahoma has, you know, in addition to the horrible anti-trans bills, has multiple anti-abortion bills, multiple bills uh, criminalizing Black Lives Matter, efforts to uh, suppress voters, you know, basically criminalize voting. I mean, so much is happening. The down-ballot races in November went horribly by and large. And so I think that we're now going to be in a situation if we don't invest in state legislative advocacy on the front end, we're going to be fighting legal battles in the courts that are stacked against us on many, many issues. This fall, the Supreme Court uh, heard a case that has to do with a case in which private agencies that receive taxpayer funding wish to be exempt from non-discrimination requirements. Kind of what are you looking out for with the decision over this case? What could be the, the wider ramifications of it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about the anti-trans bills. I think one manifestation of anti-transness and anti-LGBTQ sentiment through the legal system is through these efforts to exempt um, religious entities, including religious entities that receive federal funding um, from non-discrimination laws. The child welfare context, that has been a particular target. I think that it is going to be, you know, we're going to get a decision in the Fulton case at some point in the next few months. I think it is very unlikely that we will win that case. So the question is, is it going to be a narrow loss? Is it going to be a catastrophic loss? Um, because again, the way in which the court rules here is not even limited to discrimination against LGBTQ people, potentially. I mean, it, you know, these are, a lot of these entities are seeking exemptions from non-discrimination laws as a general matter. Um, but we we litigated this before. You know, there are rules in place essentially saying that if you have a neutral and general rule that's applied equally, that is not a burden on on religion. Um, and people tried to argue that, you know, race-based protections also burden their faith. Um, Sex-based protections burden their faith. This has been a recurring theme. Um, and consistently, the courts have said no, and that you're still subject to non-discrimination laws. I think that what we're seeing is, uh, you know, a new effort to chip away at generally applicable non-discrimination protections. I think the Fulton case will be an incredibly important and scary metric of what is to come. Um, and we're also seeing the extent to which this court is willing to exempt, um, you know, religious institutions from neutral le legal standards. I mean, the COVID-related decisions coming out of this court have been, you know, completely already sort of abrogating decades of precedent that, um, you know, would not have exempted churches and other faith institutions from, um, you know, general laws, um, neutral laws of general applicability. But and yet, you know, we're seeing all of these ways in which churches and other faith institutions, although largely Christian churches um, and, and some Jewish synagogues in New York have been able to get out of COVID restrictions. And so I think we're going to that is sort of a preview of what we might expect um, from Fulton and other cases. Now, I could easily talk to you for hours because there is just so much here to unpack with everything. Um, but I have just one more question before we have to wrap things up. 
Um, you wrote a Medium post outlining the actions that people can take to stand up for trans youth in the face of all of these efforts. So what are some of the most important things that people can do right now? Yeah, I mean, I can't stress enough how important it is to get people engaged with their state level lawmakers. You know, there are state there are bills pending in almost half the states, which means, you know, many, many people have representatives and senators who are going to be voting on these measures. Our opponents are doing a way better job of getting constituent contact to lawmakers, which means we have to do better. We have to contact our lawmakers, you know, and, and that means looking up who your state senator is, looking up who your state rep is, making sure you know who your governor is, making sure you know who your lieutenant governor is because those are the people who are going to make votes on on trans lives. And so, you know, getting people engaged and informed, even though, you know, the state legislative process is deliberately very opaque, um, you know, trying to make sure people are informed and then inform others um, because a lot of what's able to happen and, and we've seen this in the, you know, in the abortion context for, for years is, you know, chipping away at legal protections through, you know, state level um, attacks on the right itself. And so that's what's happening here. Um, so making sure people are contacting their legislators, making sure they're informing others about what's going on, um, helping people stay engaged. We can all phone bank wherever we are. So there's lots of phone banks set up. Um, if you go to the NEAT, N-E-A-T.org, um, they will have phone banking uh, information available. So if you are in New York, but you want to help out in Alabama, you can help you know drive Alabama voters to contact their representatives and give critical information and then donate, you know, trans-led organizations in these states are going to need resources to organize and support the community, particularly if these bills pass, there's going to be a, a huge need for, you know, material support for trans young people. So making sure that we're donating and farming and sharing, you know, love and money with our people. Well, Chase, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me. Where can our listeners find your work? Well, I have been trying to update my Twitter and my Instagram uh, at Chase Grandio with all of the things that are happening. So feel free to check me out there. And then at ACLU.org, we also have a bill tracker and uh, we will be in court um, and I will uh, make sure people are aware of what's happening in all of the litigation and legislative fights. Excellent. Thank you. I like to leave you with some good news, and this is about an exciting project coming from the Obamas and Netflix. LGBTQ Nation reports that the former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama will produce a feature film on the life of Bayard Rustin, the gay Black activist who organized the 1963 March on Washington and introduced nonviolent methods to Martin Luther King Jr. For six decades, Rustin fought for civil rights and gay rights and began working with Dr. King in 1955 as a strategist. Rustin faced challenges as a gay man in the movement and was even arrested on a morals charge in the early 50s. But he persevered and became more involved in the fight for gay rights later in his life. George C. Wolfe, the director of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, is set to direct alongside writer and producer Dustin Lance Black, who won an Academy Award for Milk. I can't wait for this movie and especially for a new generation to be introduced to this civil rights icon. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa D. Monts. Forever! Yeah.